Hello, it's Sport in the Fields, episode six, in association with Aldi UK, official supermarket partner of Team GB. I'm Jonathan Overend. Make sure if you haven't already, you've subscribed to get the whole series. Check us out on social media as well at fields underscore sport. And there's a website, sportinthefields.com, for a little bit more information. We're here for every day of the postponed Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games to share our stories, our front row experiences of decades of reporting on astonishing sporting moments and talking to ultimate superstars. And this is what really interests me about this episode. When we talk about superstars, those medal winners, so many of them are natural talents and have been since a ridiculously young age. I mean, look at someone like Usain Bolt. We're going to talk about him later in the series. He was running stupid times on the beaches of Jamaica when he was primary school age. Same thing for Roger Federer. People who watched him in junior days will say he was such a natural talent, he was always going to become a champion. Might have taken a little while, but he got there and he became an all-time great. This episode, though, slightly different. This is the project episode. This is about building that Olympic success from scratch, from next to nothing. And it's going to be a fascinating journey, I think, from the ground up, from a sports governing body point of view. Right, my co-host for this episode is someone known for his expertise on the Paralympic Games. And I only mention that because we're hoping to do something similar to this during the Paralympics at the end of August. It would be nice to do. We'll just have to wait and see on that. It's Andy Stevenson. How are you? Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, very well, thank you. Great to have you involved because you've worked on Olympic Games too. No no reason to just have you on Paralympic conversations. I mean, is, there, is that a thing? And and is there, in your opinion, a a wider issue to be addressed uh, regarding, I don't know, short-term thinking, both in sport and broadcasting, when there's a a much deeper issue of lack of diversity to solve? I think there's certainly a perception in the wider world that disabled people only watch disabled sports. They only watch the Paralympics, for example. And actually, I think even worse, there's probably still a perception that disabled people only play sport against other disabled people, which of course is is nonsense. And I know from, from my own career actually that in the last few years, you rather kindly there described it as an expertise in Paralympic sport. Thank you for that. Now I have become a bit of a specialist in Paralympic sport, but my career is not built on that. You know, I've I've worked on Olympic Games, as you say, football, golf, Wimbledon, uh, for the BBC and others. And and that's very important to me. And Whilst I absolutely love my role as a producer and broadcaster on the Paralympics now, I don't ever want to be pigeonholed into just that sphere. I want to be, a, you know, an all-rounder like everyone else. So I, you know, I think um, if there's a Paralympic series to come in this podcast, and I'll be absolutely delighted to work on that. But I'm, I'm um, very happy to be asked to be on the Olympic series as well. Quite right. Well, we worked together in Rio, didn't we, at the Paralympics? Had a great time. That was a good trip, didn't we? And, uh, you know, I got to know you a bit then. It was, it was a good games, really good games. The Brazilians got into it just as they had the uh, able-bodied games a few weeks earlier. It was fantastic, wasn't it? And I, I think particularly fantastic because of all the fears and worries in the lead-up. If you remember, the, you know, tickets hadn't been sold. There were still security issues, etc., there were one or two issues with certain teams not even being able to travel to the games at one point. Uh, but Rio, Rio delivered and, and they, they served up all those cliched things that we, we hoped they would, you know, the carnival atmosphere, etc. you know, everybody supporting all the countries. And, uh, and the thing I remember most actually from the Rio Paralympics is your face when I ordered a chocolate pizza 
in in one of the <laughs> in one of the bars late one evening. So that's 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 a, that's something that sticks in my mind. But it was um, yes. it was a fantastic, which I now make for my daughters regularly. <laughs> <laughs> Got your daughter who's probably maybe about, that was the inspiration. <laughs> your daughter who's probably about twenty five years younger than me. So uh, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of the Olympics, Andy, what what was your earliest Olympic memory? Would you say? So my first Olympic memory, really strong memory, is Barcelona ninety two. Uh, not actually. The Archer in the opening yep. ceremony, or Linford Christie, or Sally Gunnell, but uh, Chris Boardman. <laughs> so I was 11 years old um, when Barcelona came round, and my dad, whilst not a cyclist himself, my dad was a, a fan of the Tour de France watching it on the television. So for a few years by then, I'd been watching the Tour de France every night with him on, on Channel 4. And so to me, cycling was a slog. It was an endurance mm. event. It was up mountains. And I switched on Barcelona 92 and here was this guy whizzing around a track on a bike. And I thought, wow, this is, this is a cycling I can, I can get into. And of course, um, he won his, was it, I can't remember if it was his first medal, but he certainly won one of his goals in the pursuit. And the pursuit is a fantastic event. I, I, I defy anyone, whether you're a cycling fan or not to watch it, watch a cycling pursuit race and not, not get on the edge of your Mm -hmm. seat. And I always think about the pursuit and looking back on that race in 92, the first one I'd ever seen. You know on University Challenge where they have the two teams sat above each other? It's made to look on the screen like they're above each other. It took me years to realise they're not actually sat above (laughs) each other. And it's the magic of TV. Well, the same is true of the pursuit race, isn't it? Because when it gets to the the line that they have to cross to do the timings, the TV switches to a, a split screen view. And yeah, and they're on the same track, they're just on, the same on different track. halves of it. Exactly. And I, I, I sat there like, in the early rounds going, this is weird. Like They were going around a bend a minute ago, and now they're... And of course, then the penny drops and you realise... Well, that links nicely into the theme for this episode, because this is the project episode, and British Cycling was very much a project, wasn't it? I suppose inspired by the Boardman years that you were talking about, and then Dave Brailsford, Team Sky, the Manchester Velodrome, and all those amazing athletes who came through ahead of... 2012 to really build something but what's interesting the guest that we've got on for this episode was heading a performance program just a few yards away andy just over a a little pathway almost next to to the etihad stadium on the east side of manchester because british taekwondo has been building a project over the last uh, couple of decades and the man heading it up is the performance director of gb taekwondo he's on the pod let's bring him in it's gary hall Joining us from GB Taekwondo HQ, how are you, Gary? I'm very well, Jonathan. Thank you. Yeah, good to be back in uh, in all, all but strange circumstances. Well, COVID, absolutely. I was, well, I was wondering how it's worked for you. Uh, obviously, as a as a contact sport, what what have the last uh, few? Well, what, we all know what the last few months have been like, but maybe just the last few weeks as as life has started to vaguely return towards normal. What what, what has that been like for you? Yeah, it was it was a very weird from from shutdown through to where we are now. About eight weeks ago, we came back under the phase one um, return to training plan that the government approved. Uh, and that allowed us to get our guys back in their academy houses um, and start training in very small groups. Um, phase one only lasted a week and we were into phase two. So we were able to expand the group slightly and um, and the training's begun and has, has been going on for now seven weeks. And, uh, and it's been it's been brilliant, really, um, because 
you know, you can only do so much in a garage, in a garden, and and on a Zoom call. Um, uh, when you get face to face, albeit under COVID, you know, protection circumstances, it is so much better, and it and it lifts the whole mood of the camp. And I think the biggest the biggest challenge for us is to regain that momentum. We were going into Tokyo with, um, and still will, to be honest, an exceptionally powerful team and. Um, it, it definitely put some pause into that, uh, rightly so. But it's it's now getting that momentum back, and we've started that process. So everybody's delighted to be back and, uh, so, and working so, on the right. So things. before you were all able to link up together at HQ, then um, people like Jay Jones, Bianca Walkton, they were all basically in their flats, were they? Um, just basically doing doing as much training as they could. Yeah, well, basically when they shut us down on a Saturday morning. Everybody came in, two, two bits of weights, bits of kicking targets, kicking pads, and then disappeared that up to any space that they had. Jade and Bianca have got their own place. They live together. Um, and they were able to set up a mini gym in the garage. And, um, yeah, they, that, that worked really, really well. But, again, the next phase coming out of a garage is, is, is super critical for a full-contact sport. And, uh, but they did. They settled down really well. They got a lot of good work done. But I think uh, by week four and by week five, I was starting to get the phone calls, Gary, any chance yet? Any chance yet? And I said, hang on a minute, Jade. I'll ring Boris to see if he'll let us off the, uh, the taxi rank yet. But I kept going back, no, I'm sorry, Jade. Carry on kicking Bianca for a little bit longer. Uh, and then Bianca said, well, what about me? Can I kick Jade for a little bit longer? Of course you can, Bianca. And um, and and they just got on with it. And the, the team have been brilliant, to be honest, to get through that circumstance that they had. And um, it brings out one of the other cornerstones of our DNA, and, and that is re- resilience. And our team is incredibly resilient. Would you say, Gary, that actually, in some ways, taekwondo actually was one of the easiest sports for for the athletes to to kind of deal with the lockdown? You know, having a having a home gym set up if they could, and and obviously, as you say, you talk about Jade and Bianca living together, which was a a nice coincidence, I guess. But it. It's not as if they necessarily needed to be out on water or something or, or have lots and lots of equipment. Is that fair? Um, it is It is fair. I mean, from a conditioning perspective, um, you, you haven't got all the sort of the weights and the and although we did move what bikes and some dumbbells and some bars to these gyms, um, but then they can kick in a space that doesn't require a lot of equipment. And I was speaking to David uh, uh, Sparky, Chris, Chris Spice, um, and he is the PD of uh, of swimming, and he was talking about these infinity pools that they had to put into back people's back gardens. I wouldn't have liked that logistical challenge, uh, although although Jay did see that and said, "Can I have one of those spas in the back of my garden?" <laughs> no, no, Jay, that's uh, that's uh, that's not going to be possible. So yes, I would suggest it is a little bit easier for us. Um, uh, it's more of the quality of the work that you can do in those spaces. And obviously, a coach plays a huge role um, in in driving the sessions and driving the contents of the sessions. And although we did a lot of that via the teams and the zooms, uh, it doesn't replace, I don't believe, face to face to face and and that touch and that feel of of what's going on and what's coming, out, what's the output coming out from a session. You know, the coach's uh, artistry comes comes into play there, and it's very difficult to see that and feel that. Uh, via Zoom, really, but yeah, we 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 were able to do it quite easily, and we definitely got some quality out of it. Um, so yeah, we are we're we're not in the in in some of the difficult positions of some of the sports like 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 swimming, for instance, mm-hmm. as you just as you just said. 
It's funny, um, I, I once went to Joe Calzaghi's um, hometown when he was world uh, super middleweight champion and his dad, Enzo, of course, famously, and they, they, their setup was basically a shed. It, I mean, it was yeah. a shed. I couldn't believe it when, when I walked in and you know, this was the home of the world boxing champion. And I love the idea that, you know, we could have multiple medalists in Tokyo coming out of the same garage somewhere <laughs> somewhere in the Manchester suburbs. So maybe that yeah. garage will become as famous, Gary, as, as Joe Calzaghi's shed. Yeah, 100% it will. It'll definitely be on the on the storyline when it's told. I mean, GB Taekwondo's history, we've we've had various different venues and venues has very rarely been our, our challenge. It, we always want more and we always want better. Um, but we, we, we won our first Olympic gold medal, um, in London and Jade, Jade was our first Olympic gold medalist and we were training in an aisle of, uh, at the end of the Asda store. So we called it aisle 59 and it was, um, one of these shed type, um, warehouses that Asda owned, but couldn't use the footfall for their retail. So we said, look, can we have that? Can we put some mats down in there and use that? Because the previous gym was a 1960s asbestos-roofed warehouse. And uh, that, that in the winter got down to about minus 20. We even trained on uh, the 17th green at Golden Hill Golf Club. Uh, and... And, and and we got we we appeared in the newspaper three days later that some vandals had um, had torn up the green on the seventeenth and uh, didn't really want to declare it but we were doing an innocent taekwondo session sparring with each other just because we were mad passionate about the sport we loved it we wanted to train but prior to that prior to that we have the story of uh, where we first started our first facility was, uh, I don't know if you've been down to Loughborough University, you must have, and seen the mm-hmm. high pack where all the athletes train. And at the end of their athletics track is an old athletes pavilion. And um, in, that, in that pavilion is a, is a corridor that leads to the men's toilet. And we, we, our first office was, was uh, uh, the broom cupboard along that corridor to the men's toilet of the athletes pavilion at Loughborough University. <laughs> And so we have come from some very uh, understated facilities, let's put it that way. I've been in that broom cupboard, believe it or not, Gary. I've, <laughs> I've, recorded, I've recorded voiceovers in that very broom cupboard. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it is, it's, it's the size of like an airing cupboard, isn't it? Absolutely. And then our training was, you know, the, 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 the original bowling area, you know where the high pack is above? Yeah. There's like an alley where they used to do all the cricket bowling. Well, that was our um, original gym when we were starting to get a little bit of uh, funding coming through from UK Sport. And that actually wasn't wide enough. And because it wasn't wide enough, we had to put some like cushioned bumpers along the walls so, so that if you got kicked against it, you weren't going to come out injured. So, yeah, we've, wow. we've, we've, we've travelled a long way. When, when did that funding start, by the way, just out of interest? It started really just after uh, 2000, 2001. Right. After the Sydney Olympics, which was Taekwondo's first Olympic Games. Fine. So I suppose in terms of your Olympic journey and the, the GB team's Taekwondo Olympic journey, we, we, we have to trace the story back when? To, to Athens? Uh, yeah, my uh, the first time Taekwondo was in the Games was um, Sydney. And two athletes, we had two athletes that got there 
uh, Sarah Stevenson, young Sarah Stevenson then, and uh, Colin Daly, um, who was also a Loughborough student, a Loughborough graduate. And they were the two first two athletes. And I was um, overseeing the, um, the, uh, the sort of how things were done at that time. I was not involved because... I was always, um, I've run dual careers besides the taekwondo and I was uh, head of technology, homeware technology for Next. And I I was able to go to Loughborough and set it up in my lunch break, if you like, because um, I was um, in Leicester, which is where their head office was in Odeby. And Loughborough University is where we first set it up because my house was there. We wanted to get a bit more serious. We got a fifth place and a seventh place in, in Sydney, but... I was uh, I was team leader in Athens, team leader then into Beijing, team where we won our first Olympic bronze medal, and then a team leader in London where we won a gold and a bronze, and then Rio where we won a gold, a silver, uh, which should have been a gold in Lutelo, and a and a bronze. You're listening to Sport and the Fields in association with Aldi UK, official supermarket partner of Team GB. I'm Jonathan Overend alongside Andy Stevenson and we're in conversation with Gary Hall, performance director of GB Taekwondo. I'm interested to get a bit deeper in this idea of the project. When Gary started with his extraordinarily limited facilities, what was the idea? Was the plan always to win medals at Olympic Games? I think it was a vision, but I think my vision was formed uh, from being in a sport that had nothing. There was always copious amounts of excuses as to why we couldn't win, or particularly at the bigger stages. We were getting the odd success. We always had talented fighters in GB, but never the system and always a vast amount of excuses why we couldn't do it. So I literally collated a list of all those excuses as to why we couldn't do it. I I thought to myself, um, there must be a way of doing this, and a lot of it depends on resources and a lot of depends on funding. And obviously, uh, we got given a window to make a bid to UK Sport, and um, I was the first person to go down with a business plan for about 12 million quid in 2001. And somebody at UK Sports said to me, well, Gary, look, we give pigeon racing uh, £7,000 a year. We'll give you 2000 And then 12 months later, what we did is we basically banked all our resources behind the very best athletes. And we literally grew top down. And every time we, we, we were able to get success, we were able to bid for more. And as I say, in that cycle, um, I think we had about collectively about twenty thousand pounds, and now in this cycle, uh, we're 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 up at about nine point four million. So we've we've not only grown in terms of its results, but we've grown in terms of the investment into us. Yes. As a result of delivering every time we said we were going to deliver and what we were going to deliver. I, I want to know more. I don't know about you, Andy. I want to know about more about the meeting where you asked someone for 12 million quid and were given two grand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, we, we, we admire your is. audacity, Gary. <laughs> uh, well, I, actually, I can't tell you. I, I, was, I was given some duff information by the... Uh, by the chairman of the then British Taekwondo who said, look, Gary, look, there's an opportunity to go in with a whole sport plan. And I went, I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, they've, they've invited us down for this whole sport plan. Uh, can you put something together? Obviously, I was used to, to dealing with big PLCs. By that time, I was uh, 
I was a director of a PLC in London and I, I sort of knew a bit about business planning and how to make the right kind of pitch. And um, I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So I brought three or four guys together. We sat in a we sat in an office all night in a brickworks in Mansfield and um, we put together this plan that covered every aspect. And um, I, I raised this appointment with a chap then. And I'm sure you won't mind me mentioning it because I've got a lot of fond memories of him. Kevin Moore at the time was, was the guy that was leading the investments into sports like ours at UK Sport. And I went down on a Friday afternoon and um, I turned up because um, I, I was literally working down in Baker Street. So I was able to shoot across to, across to Russell Square, which is where UK Sports Office was them days. And um, and he said, um, he, he sat me down and he said, yeah, he said, you so have you got something for me? Yeah, I've got your plan and can I put this on PowerPoint? And he said, just just hang on a minute. I said, what, what do you mean? Said, uh, so I gave him this plan. I said, there's the plan. And, and he literally went straight to the back and looked at the summary document, you know, where you, you got your spreadsheet and your figures at the back. Mm-hmm. And he started to chuckle a little bit, but then he went a bit red-faced. And then he, then you know you're in trouble because he said, listen here, young man. Uh, he said, I don't, I don't know what you're coming in here for. He said, but... Twelve and a half million quid, he says. You're having a laugh, and then he literally chucked the power. I'm going. Do you know how much work went into that? We had a very frank conversation. I was happy he did, in a way, when you reflect on it, because that frank conversation at the start allowed us to really, pit, really be ruthless about what we could do and what we needed to do. And with that two thousand pound, we were able to give Sarah Stevenson a little bit more training, focusing in on one athlete. We were able to start a little bit of an office you know once or twice a week down down the uh the the Loughborough pavilions um corridor we never tried to which most countries have tried to copy the career model which is the most successful model it's their sport it's it's their it's, it's in their cultural dna and a lot of sports tried to copy them and i said okay i've lived in that system there ain't no way we're going to be able to copy and be a successful copy uh, against the career model. We need to do this in a British modern sport kind of way. And that's what we started off back in, in 2000. And then, as I say, we grew. I think we advanced to from 20 grand a four-year cycle to about 128 grand a four-year cycle, going into Beijing, London, it grew more. And then into Rio, it's grown even more. So, and then Tokyo, this cycle's been been a, de- a very good level of investment by UK Sport and um, without UK Sport, there's absolutely no way we, we would exist. They've been a, a true stakeholder every step of the way. With what you've just described there, Gary, just how significant then was Sarah Stevenson's bronze in, in Beijing? Just to get a medal on the board, did that did that give you that sense of vindication to go back and say, I told you we were going to do it, you know, I told you we needed some money to do it. Was, was, it, was there a real sort of feeling of not just happiness, but real triumph? The bronze medal in, in, in Beijing was pleasurable and enjoyable for many reasons. But the one thing, we, we lost uh, the bronze medal match against China. I was sitting in the crowd as this was happening and she hit her with about three seconds to go in the face and a newspaper reporter captured the picture on his camera of the foot positioned right in the face. But the judges didn't give her the score that would have won her the match. In Taekwondo, the rules that were then didn't allow you to protest that and say it was a point or it wasn't a point. We were so um, bent on getting this and so committed to getting this medal, there was no way I couldn't fight for this. So I had to. I, I ended up going into the back room 
and putting in a formal protest to which the technical delegate of the World Taekwondo Federation reminded me that this was the Olympic Games and Olympic Games <laughs> decisions don't get overturned. And, uh, and I said, well, I don't give a shit what your rules say. And I don't give a, I don't give a shit what, whether a decision has ever been overturned in the past. I'm going to show you a photograph now where if you see this photograph, I know that the British media is going to put this on every paper there is tomorrow morning and you need to do something about it. So I, and, and, I, and this guy, I can't remember who it was, he was working for the Daily Mail at the time. He gave me his, his Apple, his iPad. Uh, um, he said, take that with you. And I said, oh, a fairly expensive machine there. You're going to trust this with me. So I went into the back room with this photograph and I showed this guy and he, you could see his face change. And the thing was, he was against China in China. And it, it just, and, and she was Chen Zong, who was the then world champion. Sarah beat her in the world championships in 2001. She got her own back on her in 2003. And so this was a grudge match. I had a call from Team GB HQ as well and said, oh, we're, we're coming down. I said, well, we're going in. If you don't come down, we're going in. Uh, which <laughs> That didn't go very down, down very well for Princess Anne either. So... <laughs> But it was right. It, it was, was the right was. decision, and ultimately, that's why yeah. that's why you did it, and that's why you you weren't going to take no for an answer. And ultimately, Gary, that's why the sport changed and and introduced video technology, so that these these sort of mistakes can be reviewed. And when you think of the hoo ha in football, I mean, oh, yeah. you know, when I turned up for the first match of VAR, I mean, you'd think it had only just been invented. And I'm thinking Taekwondo were doing this 10 years ago, man. Yeah, absolutely. So it just goes to show, actually, even though it must have felt a bit backwards on that day in 2008, actually, yours was one of the sports le- leading the way on this yeah, it did definitely change things, Jonathan, and, and I think it changed it for the absolute better. And uh, a lot of good came out of it, um, but it, it didn't feel like that at the time. And um, Steve Peters was working with them, and if you know Steve Peters, his, his model is all about managing your chimp. But I can assure you my chimp was was well out and there was no way it was going to get caged until we got that overturned. <laughs> I'm, I'm just sat here. I'm, I'm re- I looked at the match report, as they, as they might say, on, on the internet here, and I'm reading the match report about that fight you're describing. And it says, performance director of the British team, Gary Hall, immediately filed a protest. It's, it's, it's wonderful to actually hear, hear yeah. how colourful yeah. that protest was. <laughs> it was. If you'd have been in the... If you'd have been in the back room, it was very colourful. That's a good way of describing it. Yeah, absolutely. I know from experience what an exciting sport taekwondo is to watch. And this British team is really special at the moment. Multiple world champions. They would have been heading to Tokyo with genuine medal chances in every weight division they were entering. So how does Gary feel about the postponement? Will Britain actually be stronger one year later? We were going into that games with three world champions. Out of the five players that are going, three of them are world champions, and the other two are in the top six of the world. We had a one of the strongest teams. There's no two ways about it. And all desperate to Jade to win a third gold, Bianca to win her first gold, Lutelo trying to put it right. Uh, from what happened to him last time, we had a we had a we had a bank of brilliant possible stories, but. But that has, you know, you have to rationalise it. And again, I said to you earlier on that our resilience as a team has been harvested from having to fight for every penny, for every for every uh, moment of success. 
And that goes from me through to the coaching team, through the science and medicine team that, that have been with us now for quite some time. But most importantly, from the athletes, because the athletes have to dream, they have to believe, and we have to facilitate those dreams and, uh, and or what it takes to achieve those dreams. That's what we have to facilitate. And you don't just do that by money. Andy, I know you're excited about uh, Taekwondo at the Paralympics. Yes, I mean, that was something we were obviously building up to this year as well, the first first ever appearance, isn't it, of, of Taekwondo at the Paralympics. Yeah. And, and Amy Truesdale and others were uh, just as as uh, hope for a medal chance as, as your Olympians that you've been talking about there. And and how important is it to you, Gary, that the Olympic and Paralympic Taekwondo athletes all train together? Yeah, it's, it's, again, having this facility here um, is, is a huge place where um, the new up-and-coming athletes can uh, can learn from each uh, with the experienced athletes can learn from each other. Having the para program now here, almost full time as well, uh, being able to have Amy, who's always been at the top of a game, but being able to add some extra bits, and now she's got that Olympic gold medal to really shoot for, and she's super excited about that, and to be able to put a, a full time coach in the mixer with that program as well, and all the sports science and medicine that supports Amy along the way, and then we uh, we 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 took. Um, we did a bit of talent talent identification and found um, Matt Bush, who um, who went on last year to win the world title of six months worth of training. Prior to that, he was doing a bit of MMA and various other things. So is, is it it's Matt not, Bush who's the dairy farmer, Gary? That's the that's the chap. Yeah, and I just was literally on the phone to him before I spoke to you. But he's the dairy farmer, and he comes up every other week and. And uh, he, like I say, he's become world champion in a very short space of time. He was, unfortunately, really, really gutted for him. He started late and uh, qualification is over four years. You amass so many ranking points. He missed automatic qualification by 0.6 of a point uh, a few months before we hit uh, the end of last year. So he's got to go again in terms of a qualification tournament, which will happen this year. And then we've got Joe Lane as well, who's... Who's come? He's in the top eight of the world now as well. So yeah, I mean, Amy's Amy's um, you know world champion, European champion, uh, and and won the test event. And she's she's in, you know an incredible athlete and really learns a lot not just from the the coach and the support network she has here, but some of the other great champions that work alongside her now day in day out. So yeah, it's a, it's a great environment here. It's a great atmosphere of shared collaborative learning and and for, for talent like Amy, Matt, Joe, they're, they're, they're really bouncing off the guys really well and, and really progressing as a result of it. Gary, we, we've really enjoyed the time in your company today. Some wonderful stories from, from years in charge of GB Taekwondo. We'll see you in Tokyo. Well, yeah, great to speak to you guys. Loving the pen drop. Not a mic drop, it's a pen drop. So there we go, Gary Hall, the performance director of British Taekwondo. What a what a character, a, nat- a natural storyteller, Andy. And uh, well, the whole high street's been mentioned there. <laughs> Love the bit about the, the the twelve million quid meeting at UK Sport as well. I mean, so many elements to the building of this remarkable project. Just so much charisma, isn't there? But but backed by this steely determination, and you kind of think he's he's exactly the kind of person that a sport like taekwondo needed at the point he came along i know he'd been an athlete for them before but 
it, it feels really sort of serendipitous, doesn't it, that a sport that needed somebody like that to push their case, get as much funding as he possibly could and say, look, we're going to make this happen. They couldn't have found a better person to lead them through the last, what, 15 years? And isn't it a great example as well? You know, if we look back to the formation of the National Lottery, which obviously you know funds the performance programmes through UK Sport, which, as he has outlined so clearly, helps build a system, employ coaches, bring facilities that enables to get the best out of athletes. You know, us literally buying a one-quid lottery ticket has helped build a system which has delivered medals on a reasonably consistent basis. I was thinking while he was talking, just along those lines exactly, I was looking at my notes here because I'd written Sydney, no medals, Athens, no medals, but obviously it was early days. But then it goes Beijing, one medal, London, two medals, Rio, three medals. I mean, we've all all got used to looking at graphs and charts over the last couple of months, haven't we? But that that is such a clear, you can't get a clearer indication of that than that, can you? And in Jade Jones, you know, a double gold medalist who's going, for three in a row plus Latelo Mohammed you know I, I didn't want to ask Gary the obvious questions about what's been and gone in case you're wondering why didn't we ask him about what happened to Mohammed in Rio can you can look that up on Google he lost the gold medal in the last second but if he gets redemption and if he upgrades to gold at his third Olympic Games plus Jade Jones plus Bianca Walkton plus the other members of the team it's potentially one of the stories of the games, isn't it, from a British point of view? Yeah, and then suddenly you look, start looking ahead and thinking this could actually become a sport that, that Britain is one of Britain's key sports going into any Olympic Games in the future. And, you know, having heard Gary talk there, I've got full confidence in him that he's going to continue growing the participation, finding more potential elite athletes coming through. And, yeah, very much a sport on the rise, I would say, definitely. And great to hear about the uh, the Paralympic team as well and the plans for later in August. Andy, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure having you with us. We'll hear from you again later in the series, I'm sure. Uh, make sure you subscribe through your usual podcast provider and you'll get every episode of the series so far and also ahead in the future because we've still got some way to go. 16 episodes, one dropping each day of what would have been Tokyo 2020. So we'll see you next time. Fields is a 94.19 independent production. In association with Aldi UK, the official supermarket partner of Team GB.